0: like to begin our time today in God's word uh, by turning your attention to our pillars of truth uh, page number 51 if you would grab a copy of the pillars of truth this is just a a wonderful summary of biblical doctrine that's contained in the Bible and I want to draw your attention to chapter 20 in the second London Confession of Faith, chapter 20, paragraph 1, and this is on page 51 of the Pillars of Truth. This is a section dealing with the gospel, the extent of the grace thereof. It's really articulating the power of the gospel. And it's really important that we read this and we understand it as we're dealing with what we have been talking about over the last several weeks in Hebrews chapter 11 because as I emphasized last week when looking at Abraham and Abraham's obedience absolutely everything that we're learning in Hebrews 11 friends it begins with the power of biblical conversion it begins with the power of the grace thereof that takes a hardened cold heart and makes it love God, makes it love God's commands and His ways, and wants to and and desires to walk with God in obedience. We see here in paragraph number one that the covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life, that God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman of course we know that was in genesis 3:15 he gave this the confession says as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance in this promise the gospel as to the substance of it was revealed and therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners, men born again, changed by the power of God, and then set forth in a new life, a new life that is going to require enduring faith. And this is what we've been uh, reading about in Hebrews chapter 11. So drawing your attention now to today's sermon text, look with me at Hebrews 11. We're going to uh, read from verses 8, to 19 Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 19 Follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, "By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed; and he went out, not knowing "...whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God." Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead so many as the stars of the sky and the multitude and the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But, now they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city." By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, he offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. We'll stop there. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. We come once again here, friends, to this portion of Scripture that obviously is focusing upon the servant Abraham. This is, as we learned last week, a man who, with his father Terah, as recorded by Joshua, was one who was worshiping a pagan goddess, a moon goddess. And God called Abraham, didn't he? We saw in Genesis 12. And God changed Abraham through the power of the gospel and the extent thereof. He converted Abraham and made Abraham one of his own sons. He gave Abraham promises. And in this catalog of Old Testament saints we have in Hebrews 11, we come back to Abraham who more spoken of him in this chapter than in anyone else. So it's no surprise that we'd want to come back and see what it is that this inspired New Testament author has for us to learn about the subject of enduring faith so that these first century Christians totally understand what he wishes for them to glean to make it unto the end. Last week when we looked at Abraham, we saw that amongst the many fruits that the gospel produced in his life, there was a profound trust in God once he was converted. There was an unreserved obedience to God. And indeed, we saw that those are two essential qualities that are necessary for someone to make it unto the end. To to ensure that they get to that heavenly country that is a better country. A trust that God is who He says He is. A trust that He has revealed Himself in His Word. And an obedience unto Him which always will include a continual repentance over sins and transgressions and a continual growth and sanctification unto Him. Trust and obedience the main point that the writer wanted to show us last week is where those two things are wanting or where those two things would be lacking, there is a very real probability that a malnutritioned saint with not trust and with void of obedience is very likely going to fall away from his or her profession of the faith. But for our purposes today, There is something much more in the witness of what God did in in his power of biblical conversion in the life of Abraham that he wants us to see in the witness of Abraham's life to help us as 21st century Christians to cultivate and strengthen and to live an enduring faith so that we make it to the end. You may he be here today, and you say, I uh, agree, yes and amen, with last week. I trust in God through Christ, and uh, uh, inasmuch as I am able, I obey Him. Understanding that that contains a continued life of repentance and sanctification, trust and obedience, yes, yes. But dear friend, what God wants us to see in His Word today also not only do you need trust and obedience which he will supply in gracious measure through the power of his spirit now that he has brought you into a new life with Christ what he also wants you to see, what he also wants you to grasp from the witness of Abraham's life is that you have to have the mind you have to possess the perspective of being a spiritual sojourner in this life if you want to make it unto the end. The spiritual sojourner perspective of a person's life after they have been uh, converted is the essential element in continuing to move forward as a pilgrim, as a disciple, as a believer, as a child of God in order to make it unto the end. And so today, the title of today's message is Abraham the Sojourner. Pretty obvious in the text. Not only Abraham, but all the Old Testament saints—they perceive themselves as a sojourner. And what I want to do in today's message, in order to help you and I to to foster and to live in an enduring faith, is to grasp the significance of after we have been converted, after our lives have been changed, after. I've been listening to Jonathan Edwards all week to, this week in a sermon to the answering the argumentations of sinners, uh, unpacking the depths of our natural depravity that we were enslaved to and we, through the gospel, like Abraham, had been freed from. And with that comes new eyes to see. With that comes a new heart to live. With that comes a new desire and appetite to walk with God. And we can't even really put into full words the miracle that it is of biblical conversion, the power of the gospel. And, and, and part of that is now seeing ourselves in a world surrounded by others and people who we once were that are blinded to the reality of what we're talking about today. The reality that there is a place called heaven. And a reality that there's a place called earth. And the reality is that someday you will spend an eternity somewhere like as brother AJ was talking about upon the death of this physical life seeing yourself as a sojourner in this life, on your way in a celestial journey to heaven. Friends, grasp it, lay hold of it, and never let it go for it is a great aid in your Christian walk as you're striving to make it unto the end. And so I want to first develop the biblical concept of the spiritual sojourner. Is what we see in Hebrews 11 through the witness of Abraham's life and the other Old Testament saints an understanding that they spiritually saw themselves as a sojourner on their way to a better place? Or is it that they just simply saw themselves as strangers in an occupied pagan geographical physical land? In other words, what I want to do is to develop first the concept of the spiritual sojourner in Scripture through the life of Abraham. Because there is many today who are really advocating and minimizing this precious biblical doctrine. And I want to show you in the Word of God what we're seeing obviously on the pages in the service of Hebrews that the biblical concept of a spiritual sojourner is a true biblical doctrine. It's a precious biblical doctrine. And I want you to be convinced in the Word of God that you, like Abraham, you, like David, you, like Peter, you, like Paul, are a spiritual sojourner here on earth on your way to a better, precious, blessed reality that is free from all suffering and sin. Now to begin our consideration as we want to lay the groundwork before we move into the life of Abraham and the testimony of Hebrews 9-19 through to learn from the lessons of Abraham and himself and his life as a spiritual sojourner, let's lay the the foundation of the concept in the Bible of a spiritual sojourner. To do that, I want to begin with the definition. It's always good to begin with definitions, knowing what words mean. This word sojourner, that's translated in the English. Obviously, it wasn't sojourner in the Greek. It was something else. And in the Hebrew, it's often translated in the English sojourner. And in both places, it carries with it this definition. A temporary resident. A sojourner is a temporary resident, a stranger or traveler who dwells in a place for a time. I think that this helps frame initially. The concept or our understanding of what is a biblical spiritual sojourner. What does the Bible teach about this? Now, another thing that I think is oftentimes overlooked when we're considering ourselves as spiritual sojourners or we're seeking to better understand what's the Bible's doctrinal teaching about a spiritual sojourner is where do people exist in all of creation? Where are they journeying through? Where are they traveling in? Well, to do that, we need to take a step back and remember that Scripture paints for us a, full, a full-orbed witness of all of God's wonderfully created cosmos. There is, of course, the created realm, we know, where judged angels and the condemned souls of men will end up one day. That created sphere, that created realm, is known sometimes as outer darkness. It's referred to as hell. And then there's the realm of creation. We know, we we, we glean this from the book of Hebrews and other places, where it appears that the Old Testament saints, the souls of them, were waiting in a place to be freed until the covenanted work of Christ was accomplished, and they would come into the presence of heaven, known as Abraham's bosom right and then we remember that as we're stepping back and trying to understand the, all the spheres and the categories of creation that there is of course the place that the bible refers to as heaven where we've learned in the letter of hebrews christ is presently dwelling there isn't he christ has a spiritual sanctuary there doesn't he and christ is there in heaven from the book of hebrews we've been learning and emphasizing he is presently doing what? Administering and working as a high priest for his church. He is there ruling and reigning and governing the affairs and the nations of men where? In heaven, right? And he's being worshipped there in heaven. Who is worshipping Christ in heaven in his spiritual sanctuary as the great high priest? Well, we know that the souls of the Old Testament saints, the souls of all of the elect, all believers who have uh, come to faith in Christ, they are there now in this place, this realm of creation called heaven, and they are worshiping Christ. But they're not the only ones worshiping Christ. We are too. But we're worshiping Christ in a different part of God's creation called earth. And that brings us to another element of understanding and wanting to develop the soldier concept in Scripture is that God has revealed in His Word that in His cosmos, in His creation, He has different spheres or realms of His creation and each one categorically are created for His purposes and they distinctly serve a particular role. And so while the angels... And while the former deceased believers in the Messiah are there in the spiritual realm right now, worshiping before the throne of Christ, we are gathered here today in the physical realm on earth and we are worshiping Him as well. But someday will come where all of us will, uh, that is, if the Lord doesn't return, we will all, what? Be laid back into the ground. From dust to dust, ash to ash, we will We will die. Well, what will happen to our souls? Well, our souls will then go and they will transport from this physical realm and they will go to where? The heavenly realm, the spiritual realm. And they will join all of those collected saints, the souls of them and the angels, and they will worship Christ where he is right now in the spiritual realm. Friends, it is important as we're developing the concept of understanding the spiritual souljourner. That's being t- uh, pointed to here in our passage, verses 8 through 19. And important for us to grasp in our pilgrim journey as Christians, it's important for us to always keep those categories and those distinct parts of creation in their proper places. In other words, earth is not heaven, and likewise, heaven is never going to be earth it would be a mistake and, it's, and, it's, and it is indeed confusing to ever collapse the two into one or to vaguely conflate the two. What do I mean by vaguely conflate the two? Well, say things such as we're going to heavenize earth. Well, you can't heavenize earth. See, that's a, that's, a, that's a vague conflating of the two. You cannot heavenize earth just as much as you can't earthenize heaven. Does that make sense? Heaven's Heaven. Earth is earth and God made them that way for a distinct reason. This present earth is marred and it's contaminated by sin. However, that can't be said of heaven. No, heaven is perfect. Heaven is pure. Heaven, unlike this earthly physical realm, is free from sin's devastating, disastrous effects. Never forget that. Never forget that sin is is the crippling disease that is corrupted and destroys everything that it touches, not only in the human race, but also in the physical earth, the created earth. This is why Paul, he, he speaks the way he does over in Romans 8, 21 and 22, when he says, "...all of creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage or corruption, the curse, the corruption of sin." One day there will come a time where the earth in some mysterious way at the great consummation will be renewed and there will not be these grotesque mutations that sin has brought about in some mysterious way. He says in verse 22, we know that the whole uh, creation groans and travails in pain. And while we want to be very careful to keep the categories of the realms of creation in their distinct places to understand and fully appreciate the concept of biblical sojourning, what we're going to get at in a moment. Friends, we also have to admit that they're interconnected. They're they're interconnected. Uh, The host of heaven, in other words, are concerned about the affairs of earth, and we likewise are concerned about heaven. We likewise ought to be concerned that Christ is there and he has revealed to us through his word that he is there and he is preparing a place for us. We are concerned that heaven is still standing and is made pure and perfect and consistent and remaining by the very word and the presence of God. I'm concerned about that. I hope you're concerned about that. And so God's creation, while it has these distinct categories and spheres, are all interrelated and interconnected. But never mistake the fact That they are separate, and they're separate according to God's design. There is one place getting closer to the concept of fully understanding the precious spiritual sojourner doctrine in Scripture. There is two scriptures I want to draw your attention to. There's one in the Old Testament, and one in the New Testament that helps us develop a better understanding of what a spiritual sojourner is who Abraham and the other New Te- Old Testament saints identified themselves as. And the first one is in 1 Chronicles 29.15. So let's turn our Bibles to 1 Chronicles 29.15. This is where we're going to go to just see from the Old Testament a witness not only of what I just mentioned earlier, that there are different spheres of God's creation, but also a reflection of how the believers, at least King David, perceived himself as he was here on this physical earth. As a spiritual sojourner. I draw your attention to the words here of King David because I believe that it perhaps best uh, represents the reality and the awareness of the difference between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm But not only that, but also David's perspective of himself as a sojourner in this earthly realm. Now, the context here, 1 Chronicles 29, is David coming to the end of his life, and he has accumulated much, and he's dedicating it unto the building of the temple, right? And Solomon's getting ready to receive or begin his reign. Notice with me here, he says... Verse 14, Who am I? He's praying to God. And what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine have we given thee. For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding." Beloved, David here is not only humbling himself before God, acknowledging that he does not possess the attributes of God, of immortality. No, but notice that David also expresses the reality that he and all his fathers, including Abraham we're learning about today, viewed themselves as being temporarily on this earth. Notice the language. He says, we are sojourners. We are as a shadow now it's important for me to inform you that the word hebrew here that is translated as sojourner most commonly does have connected with it the basic idea of a person or a group who is simply an alien immigrant in a place in a land for instance in genesis twelve ten. Abraham's described this way when it says that he sojourned in Egypt. And then later in Genesis 20 verse 1, uh, Abraham is described as sojourning in Gerar. What? He's an alien. He's a, a foreign immigrant in this land. It's not his land. It has not been given to him. He's there, but he doesn't belong there, right? It's still a land of promise, you could say. And then later, Joseph and his brothers are described as, same Hebrew word, being those who sojourned in Egypt. Oh, that wasn't their land, was it? That was not promised to them. They were there as illegal immigrants. Also, we know in the Bible, in the book of Judges, it refers to the wandering Levite who sojourned in Ephraim in Judah during the time of the book of Judges. And this word, although it carries with it this idea, this basic context or concept of an illegal immigrant With this understanding, coming to 1 Corinthians 29.15, are we to be led to believe and interpreted that David is, before God, actually saying that he's an illegal alien and uh, a stranger? Or is there something else nuanced in David's meaning? Is David, in other words, saying, I recognize that we are spiritual sojourners in this land. Our lives are but a shadow. God, we are seeking a better country. God, we know that we're only here temporarily in thy service and the building of this temple. It is but a temporary temple. it's not going to last forever. There is nothing abiding, he says in the text. I think, to come to a proper interpretation of this, that the timeline of where we're at in this statement of David to allow the full sense. To, and then what I'm proposing is the nuanced meaning of David's words here. It helps us to understand that it's approximately been a thousand years since the conquest days of Joshua. You remember those, right? In the Bible where God says, there's your land. This is the land that I will give you. But it doesn't come without a little labor on your part. You're going to have to go there and you're going to have to fight. I'm with you. I will will be with you, and it will come to pass, and, and you will have success. This is where we're at when David makes this statement. And indeed, Joshua's conquest, we know, was successful when he went into this land. Joshua and the Israelites that went into the land of Canaan, they were indeed illegal immigrants, weren't they? They were coming across the Jordan, and they were going to take dominion of a land that was not theirs. There were already inhabitants there, but we know from Joshua twenty-one forty-three that the Lord gave them all of the land. It says there, so the Lord gave to all, or I'm sorry, gave to Israel all the land of which He had sworn to give their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord has spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. That was a thousand years before David's making the statement in 1 Chronicles. Identifying himself as a sojourner. As a stranger. Uh, His life is but a shadow. Well, despite what we see in Joshua 21. Referencing his initial successful conquest. We know from the book of Judges that it was a long, hard-fought road, wasn't it? For Israel to uh, maintain dominion and subjection in the land. And it wasn't until the time in the reign of King David, where we're reading now in First Chronicles, and his son Solomon, were the words of the prophecy fulfilled that said, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be of a man of rest, And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. This brings us up to where we're at here in the words of David. Per God's promises, per God's prophecies, David had been blessed, friends, with unparalleled strength. David had been blessed with unparalleled prosperity beyond imagination. And he has completely dominated and possessed the land in which they're building the temple. It's been a thousand years of struggle. Now the prophecy is fulfilled. Solomon is going to take the reign. And Israel and God's people are at the pinnacle of the blessings that God had given them in their land. And so friends, I'm laboring through this to help you see that it's very difficult to accept the interpretation that David had used these words in this statement, sojourner, in the same common use and sense that it's typically used in the Bible and thereby identifying himself before the commencement of the building of the temple as still an immigrant in a land That doesn't belong to him. No, that's not how he was using the word sojourner. I did all those gymnastics just to demonstrate that. What's he mean? Well, rather, what seems to be the natural sense to understanding that history, what seems to be the nuanced meaning of what David is using, uh, how David is using the word sojourner here, as we're seeking to understand and develop the biblical concept of a spiritual sojourner. Because it's not just being a man in a foreign land. It has a much deeper significance to it. It's that David and all of Israel identified themselves as God's covenant people who had full ownership of Canaan. But even though they had full ownership of Canaan, even though God had helped them subdue all their enemies, although God had blessed them with all the wealth of the land, and they are about to dedicate and build a physical temple to Him, David is acknowledging that I am simply still in this earthly realm a sojourner. I am not forever here. I am seeking and I will be with you, O God, in a better place, a better city, and a better country. You see, David's expressing to us his understanding and his application of the biblical concept of being a spiritual sojourner. John Gill, commenting here on 1 Chronicles 29.15, says very succinctly, David belonged to another city and country. Well, in one sense, he belonged in his physical life there in that place in Canaan, didn't he? And God made him king, and God used him for his redemptive purposes, etc., etc., here on earth. But David understood, friends, that he belonged to a better city and a better country. I agree with the learned brother, Dr. Gill, David possessed and also expressed an important aspect to this concept of being a sojourner, and that is its spiritual connotation. I've been purposefully saying sojourner with spiritual sojourner, because the biblical concept of a sojourner too. There is, as we saw the word used with, with uh, Abraham, truly just being an illegal immigrant, roaming around in a land that's not yours, but then there's a spiritual connotation to it that 1 Chronicles 29:15, I believe, helps support, but also in other places of Scripture. By spiritual connotation, I'm referring to the idea and the concept that David and other Old Testament believers expressed the belief that they were pilgrims and sojourners in this life, and while being present in this realm called earth, they constantly look past it all of its physical realities, and they were looking for a better city and a better country, a heavenly one where the presence of their God dwelt. Now turn with me to 1 Peter. Let's go to the New Testament. There's another passage in Scripture that emphasizes what I'm calling the spiritual connotation of the doctrine of the sojourner. the spiritual connotation of the doctrine of the biblical sojourner. Now the context of Peter's epistle here is basically this. Um, Chapter 1, demonstrating you are, uh, verse 19, bought with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and spot. You have been born again. You are believers And you must live, while here in this life, a different kind of life. And this is what's being unpacked in chapter 2. And in the context of encouraging believers to live a life that reflects God's values, God's holiness, amid a corrupt and evil society, notice what he says with me in verse 11. He admonishes these born-again pilgrims, these born-again Christians... And he says to them in verse 11, you see there, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. You see, they were Christians who were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and made joint heirs with Christ from all eternity. Notice how Peter refers to them in verse 9. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a peculiar people. You should sow forth the praises of him who's called you out of this darkness into his marvelous light. Peter here, it is obvious, is appealing to a life of holiness and it's unavoidably based upon their identity as believers. Do you see that? He has no appeal to them as blinded sinners, people who have not been converted with such an admonition. We're going to be talking about a little bit later in the prayer request time, there's a pride parade, the second one ever of Henry County this year. Well, I can't go down to the pride parade, which we're going to announce, and we know who wants to go there. I can't go down there and tell these people, to walk in the light of God's truth and holiness and expect them without a work of the Holy Spirit to do it. But I can say that to you who profess Christ. I can say that to you and you, right? You've been, you're saying you've been changed again. The basis of Peter's command to them, his admonition to them, is their identification as born-again believers. And this, in this context, is where he calls them, identifies them as Strangers. And as pilgrims. He is admonishing them here, isn't he, to not adopt the customs or embrace the worldview of this earthly kingdom, but rather live as those who are passing through as strangers, as pilgrims, maintaining a life of godliness and obedience to our King, who is what? Setting on his throne in his heavenly sanctuary. Where is that located at? Not physical Jerusalem but in the heavenly Jerusalem at the right hand of God. And so while we're here, Peter is telling them, you need to develop, you need to have this spiritual commentation to a, a concept you already know much of as a wanderer in strange land. Admittedly, many of the people here in the New Testament had been scattered because of persecution, and they were geographically illegal immigrants. But dear friends, don't miss what he's nailing down here, is there is a spiritual connotation, one that's unavoidable in understanding a spiritual sojourner in the Bible. Elsewhere, the Christian is reminded of the temporality of this physical life and his journey here in the earthly realm over in Philippians 3.20. Many of you know this text, where Paul says, inspired by God's Spirit, we are citizens in heaven from whence we also look. We're looking what? Why are we looking? Because we're not there, you see. We're looking outside of the physical realm. And we're looking to heaven where we're citizens in a spiritual sense. And we're looking there, what? For the Savior. We're looking there for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, before we move to our text in Hebrews seeking to keep this biblical concept of the spiritual sojourner forever in the hearts and the minds of his church. The Lord Jesus left us with this blessed promise. Many of you know it well, John 14, 2. I am going there. Where? The heavenly realm. What is he going there to do? To prepare a place for you. Well, why are you preparing a place for us? Because the earthly realm is not your eternal destiny. The earthly realm is not the destination which you will reside for eternity. No, I'm going to the heavenly realm and I'm preparing a place for you to come and to be with me. Right? That's our home. That's our destination. Not here. I know many of you probably if if you have me and Pastor Morton were talking about this. He has a, a rather large yard he has to mow and and I said, well, you know, some people just like to mow, and some guys do like to do that, you know. But here's the thing, no matter how much you love your yard, no matter how much you love your land, friends, you can't take it to heaven with you. It's in the physical realm. It's, 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 you're not going to be there forever. And, and yes, I know we, we plant a lot of deep roots. And Believe me, uh, our property was a foreclosure. Had to do tons of work to it to get it established. But I understand that my little home in Knightstown in Henry County, Indiana, that is not where I'm going to spend eternity. I'm going to spend eternity in the heavenly realm with my Lord in a spiritual reality that is perfect and pure and holy and without the curses of this fallen world. Well, from our text today as we come back to Hebrews 11, It is very clear that Abraham and others named in this chapter, they grasped this spiritual connotation of the biblical sojourner. It's unavoidable. For those who want to minimize the spiritual connotation to the biblical sojourner, the Christian's life here on this earth, I don't know what they do with these texts. It's so unavoidable. Look with me at verses 13 and 16. These referring to, these worthy believers of the Old Testament, made alive by God's grace. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. <laughs> Let's go on. For they that saw such, say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out of, they might have had opportunity to return. And if you need any commentary, you you really don't need me. We don't need John Gill. We don't need John Calvin here, friends. Verse 16 interprets all of what this means. But now they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly country. You see it? Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. According to verse 16, here's the new flash. The only time we sung Psalms 35 before we come to this message where you and I will be free from the enemies of God, free from the mockeries of the enemies of God, surrounded by the pressures and the stresses of the enemies of God, is going to be in the heavenly country, friends. A place where God has prepared and wherefore God is not ashamed be called their god you know why because guess who inhabits that heavenly home guess who inhabits that heavenly kingdom only the children of god there's no dissenters in the church in the new heavenly jerusalem there won't be any dissenters there won't be any pockets of resistance there won't be anyone questioning and doubting and mocking Now, put yourself in the context of these first century Christians. They were surrounding a polytheistic culture and society that constantly was telling them Christ was a joke. Especially these first century Jews. You can imagine, we've talked about it before, the application of being with family get-togethers and family gatherings, their extended family who are still trapped in the darkness and the old ways of Judaism, not granted the salvific light that Abraham had received and they had received, saying, come on, don't you think you're wrong about Jesus? I mean, does anything good come out of Nazareth, right? You You can imagine that. And they longed for Nolan. They desired, like David, like Peter, like all the rest, to finally be at rest. To be in a city whose founder and maker is God. To be in the heavenly temple and sanctuary seeing Christ face to face. And where we all, even though sometimes some of us can mumble through the hymns there, we're shouting to the glory of Christ. Because why? Our souls are enraptured with the reality that the spiritual realm is truly what it was promised to be everything that it was promised to be, you will see on that great day. The concept of the spiritual sojourner is a true and a faithful doctrine meant to aid you in a life of enduring faith, wanting to make it to the end so that you taste, you see, and oh, you will experience it. Friends, dear children of God, my brothers and sisters, never let anyone deceive you about this precious spiritual connotation that's connected to the biblical doctrine of the sojourner. Notice with me in verse 10, in case there's any room for suspicion, Abraham definitely was included. With all of those mentioned in verse 13, who died in faith and was looking for a better heavenly country. Verse 10 said, he, referring of course, the subject matter is verses 8 and uh, 9, Abraham. He, Abraham, looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. All trustworthy theologians and commentators agree here, friends. I, I, there, there's probably some rare exceptions. Notice I said trustworthy theologians and commentators that Abraham here is understood not to be looking for an earthly Canaan. Not for a, a, a heavenized Babylon. All of them agree. Abraham was looking unto an eternal city which moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves and robbers cannot break in and steal. That's what Abraham longed for. And that's what he looked for. He was, yes, indeed, very heavenly minded. Now, some might say that to be so heavenly minded does really no earthly good. Or in other words... Me focusing so much on the spiritual aspect of the biblical doctrine of the sojourner by me doing that is really not going to profit to us in the kingdom building work that we have to do here on earth. For some reason, there are some within the Reformed community that have adopted the idea. That upholding the true representation and the spiritual connotation of the spiritual sojourner here in the physical realm upon earth will somehow or another unmotivate God's people or will somehow or another make you more or less disenfranchised with doing the kingdom work of God. Well, what is the kingdom of work of God? Well, very simply, it's recorded in Matthew 28. At the end of the chapter, we there we have the Great Commission. You go forth, Christ says, and you teach the nations, making them disciples. And after you make them disciples, you catechize them, then you baptize them. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what do we do? We disciple them. We teach them. Biblical conversion, the sacraments applied, and then discipleship. But somehow, some people want to believe that if you grasp and you accept the spiritual connotation that Abraham did, that David did, that all the other Old Testament saints and the first century Christians did, that somehow or another, you're just not going to want to be motivated to do that. Is that a fair claim? Is that claim valid? Is that charge accurate? Well, let's just stay in our text dealing with Abraham. But we certainly can say that wasn't true of the Apostle Paul. We definitely could say that wasn't true of Peter. We definitely could say that wasn't true of any of the first century Christians who identified themselves as spiritual sojourners. But since we got Abraham in front of us, we know it wasn't the case in the example of his life, who clearly our text today is demonstrating, possessed a biblical concept and identity as a spiritual sojourner. It's unescapable. Abraham, like David, understood himself as a spiritual sojourner looking for a better city and a better land. And so is the claim valid that such a heavenly mindedness in a person's spiritual walk who's seeking to live a life of enduring faith will not produce fruit, will not produce good works? Well, we can learn several lessons from life of Abraham to say, no, that claim is not true. First of all, we know in the life of Abraham that he actively was involved in protecting his family and other innocent people in the face of great and dangerous oppositions. Remember the battle of the four kings in Genesis 14? Where this heavenly-minded man who is, yes, obeying God, journeying through a physical land, but looking for a better land and country, what did he do? Did he say to himself when there was an unjust captivity Captivity of his nephew Lot and other innocent people like hey you know what what do you want me to do I mean at the end of the day it's all going to work out because this isn't my eternal home no what did Abraham do he gathered his 300 some odd army and he went after them facing tremendous odds and God blessed it and God helped him so in that instance Abraham's heavenly mindedness we can't say was a detraction from him doing the good work that God called him to do to protect uh, captive family member and innocent people. No, he was very much engaged in a just and a right cause and right battle, wasn't he? So I guess the detraction of being so heavenly minded and earthly good doesn't apply in that situation. But also we know that Abraham from scripture was active in building and contributing to sustainable economies. According to Genesis twenty-four thirty-five. at the end of Abraham's life, per the blessings of God, of course, and giving him opportunity. The text says there that Abraham had, quote-unquote, become rich. Well, friends, this wealth that Abraham had at the end of his life, it didn't just fall out of the sky. No, Abraham had to do what? He had to work hard. Abraham had to build. And then Abraham had to maintain godly frugality. rather. He had some fertility, too, but... Uh, he had frugality and discipline in order to arrive at such wealth. You know, so Abraham wasn't this guy like, hey, you know what, uh, building, stressing myself out, stressing myself out over these things. Hey, wh- why am I going to let that happen? Why, why am I going to go through all of that? Hey, I know that there's uh, upwards to thousands of people that depend on me uh, to keep all this stuff moving by the, God, by the strength and the power of God's grace. But, but after all, you know, this isn't my home. This isn't going to be my eternal place. Who really cares? I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go camel riding. No, that's not true. Abraham did what? He did sacrifice himself for others. He did put forth the stressful labor to build and to contribute to a working economy, even though he had heavenly mindedness. We know from Genesis 30, 43 where it attributes the prosperity of his descendant Jacob to Abraham's wealth, that Abraham, who indeed was heavenly-minded, friends, he had generational vision. He thought about the prosperity and the well-being of his descendants. So in other words, we, we gather from the witness of Genesis thirty forty that attributes the prosperity of Jacob to Abraham. Abraham didn't live a life, dare I may say, that some of us in the West could easily fall into, that, hey, use up all your stuff now for you, man. Have fun, come on. You've worked hard. Hey, but what what about this example of Abraham, who had much, and he left it to Jacob. He helped Jacob to get established, to carry forth in the work of the gospel. Well, we see from Abraham, he didn't have his best life now before he checked out. In other words, uh, no offense to anyone who maybe this is your life goal to retire here in the West and, and get you a yacht down in Florida and go along the coast and drive around and play golf in your later years and suck up all your resources that you've worked hard for. And yes, you did, brother, indeed work hard for that. And yes, we do pay taxes on that money. But grasp the significance of Abraham's heavenly mindness. He wasn't so heavenly minded that he didn't think about his responsibility to his future generations. So you see, heavenly mindedness Is a precious thing. And sometimes it has a lot of earthly good. It does a lot of good here on earth. It established Jacob. Sticking with Abraham, who's the focus of Genesis 9 through 19, we know that he was a purposeful discipler of his household, wasn't he? This man who possessed, very clear from Scripture, this great heavenly mindedness, Understanding, looking for a greater place, understanding himself to be a spiritual sojourner we know from Genesis 18:19, that even though he identified as a spiritual sojourner, waiting to get to heaven, waiting to be free from this earth, this sin-cursed earth, he purposefully commanded, discipled his family. Well, is the claim valid if someone's just so concerned? about the spiritual reality of our eternal rest, they really will fall into the ditch of not caring about the earthly good and what goes on here in the affairs of men and our families? Absolutely not. No. It was the reality of what he knew heaven was to be to be possessed that motivated and fueled him to what? Want to share that good news with his family. To want them to see and to to long for having what he had which was that promise of eternal rest in the heavenly city. We're simply here just learning lessons from the life of Abraham. That what we learn in this passage of Scripture that is meant to cultivate and strengthen you in your enduring faith, having that identity as a spiritual sojourner walking through this earthly realm to possess an, earth, an eternal home in heaven, it is, friends, very beneficial to you. It's very strengthening in your faith. And in fact it will do much good here in the physical present life. We notice in verse 17 of our text today, in his sacrificing of Isaac, he wasn't so earthly, I mean, I'm sorry, heavenly minded that he excused himself from or he tried to escape or skirt around trials and afflictions. You see, that's what would happen to someone who's earthbound. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You want me to do what? Sacrifice my son? But wait a minute, it has to be through him, the physical descendant, has this. No, 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 no. I I can't do that. I, I can't do that because after all, what really matters here on earth really is no concern to me because this isn't my eternal place where I'm going to rest. No, no, no. We don't see that in the life and in the witness of Father Abraham who exhibited a spiritual sojourner mindset, enduring faith, unto the end. Just a few concluding thoughts here. Clearly in this passage of Scripture that we've seen from Hebrews 11, 9-19, the Old Testament saints and specifically Abraham possessed a spiritual sojourner concept and idea of what it means to be journeying through this life in the service of God. It's inescapable. And friends, the more we develop that, the more we cherish that and we understand that, it will help us like it did Abraham. In this life, where you will suffer, where you will be afflicted, where you will have to contend with the enemies of God, where you will have to minister to and seek to disciple and retrieve lost wayward children, where you will have to uh, grow in sanctification because you're remaining corruptions of the flesh and demonstrate a posture of humility and repentance and saying you're sorry when you've actually sinned against someone. All of these things are important because it helps you to realize that guess what? This side of glory is always to expect these things to expect these things. That does not mean you put your head down in defeat. That does not mean, as we see in the example, we just did a cursory uh, survey of Abraham's life. It does not mean that you just accept things the way they are. No, you live as salt and light as you're passing through this earthly realm as Peter admonished us living godly lives to the glory unto our Heavenly Father. And we do it, why? Because we've been changed. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We're citizens of a heavenly city. And we're demonstrating that as ambassadors to all who are around us. Possessing a proper balance of the biblical concept of a spiritual sojourner and our clear commands in scripture as sojourners, as Christians, we must exemplify these values and standards of our true homeland and our true kingdom while we are here on this earth. Paul, in closing, reiterates this theme by reminding us that while in this realm of creation called earth, we are to be ambassadors. 1 Corinthians 5.20 Ambassadors for who and for what? For our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for His good news and all the things that He teaches To all those around us. Beloved this physical earth. It is not our home. The knowledge that we are sojourners. On this earth keeps us. It ought to. It's intended to. Keep us from setting our hearts. On all of its earthly treasures. And its false securities. And in closing. I want to simply place. Before us a question. Do you possess the spiritual sojourning perspective that the Old Testament saints possessed. Abraham, David, etc. Do you possess this perceptive knowing that your time here is short and thus you desire to spend your life for the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ while you're here on this earthly realm? Is that your perspective? Do you see yourselves here in this life that God has gifted you as a spiritual sojourner for just a fraction, a whisper? The Bible talks about our lives as a vapor and, and, and as a whisper, as a, as, a, as a shadow, King David said today. Or does your life reflect more of an earthbound perspective? One that's pouring out all of your energy and passion upon things that are temporal. And they will not last. Let us be honest with ourselves. As spiritual sojourners, what does our life witness is our priority. When we look at Abraham, we know and we see what his priority was the advancement of the promise of the kingdom of Christ. He trusted. He obeyed. He didn't unnecessarily get entangled, as Paul says later on, as a good soldier in the affairs of this world. But he did what God called him to do. And in every moment, everything he did, every person that he hired, every field that he planted, every single time, he saw it as being obedient to God in some way leading up to the bringing forth of that promised seed. Do we live our lives with that sort of intentionality? Our interaction with our co-workers, the way we educate our children, the way we raise our families, the way we spend our money, all of these things. I know there are such sensitive spots that we don't want people to question. But how are we doing that? How are we doing that to manifest that our priority is to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ? I think that the wise Christian is one who's not afraid to ask such questions, but to allow the witness and the example, which the writer of Hebrews tells us later on in this letter, is intended to be set forth in the lives of these people. Not because they were worthy, not because, as I said it over and over, they were some special, unique people, but because what God had did in their lives, and they had and they possessed this special gift of seeing themselves as sojourners in this land. And they were going to make it count. They they knew that their time here was short. And they were going to use every waking moment to advance His cause and His purposes. Let us do the same. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we come before Your holy throne, Your spiritual throne, O God, and we ask that You would help us to cherish, help us, O Lord, to glean from, to soak in all of the precious little nuggets of truth, Lord, that are held forth in the examples of these Old Testament saints' lives, which are meant to, brick by brick, Lord, fortify our endurance, fortify our understanding of what is required to foster an enduring faith, a faith that will last unto the end, Oh God, you know so much about our circumstances in this present age as your sons and your daughters, your blessed church purchased by Christ as Peter identified us as this peculiar nation, strangers and pilgrims. And Lord, there is much, very much that is seeking, Lord, to cause us to doubt, to cause us, oh Lord, to fall into the ditch of apathy, But Lord, we confess still by your grace and your power that you're the one true living God, that your only begotten Son, our Lord and our King Jesus Christ, is reigning in the spiritual realm on the right hand of your majesty on the high. And he is interceding for us. He is governing by his wise providence every single affair of all of the nations of men. And, O oh God, in so much as we trust and we confess this to be true, we pray that you would give us the eyes of hope, the eyes of perseverance, the eyes of lively action that we see in the life of Abraham. Abraham's life, we know, O oh God, from your preserved word, is very clear. His life witnessed failures. Oh, but never did it witness a giving up, a forfeiting, a surrendering. And I pray, O God, that as we continue to go through all of these examples in chapter 11 of Hebrews, that we would be strengthened as your people. Lord, all of us come here today, no doubt wandering around in this earthly realm with the dust of Egypt upon our feet, and Lord, we are weary. Lord, some of us more than others are scarred, tired, beaten. Lord, in some sense, we have been defeated throughout the week. But I pray, O oh God, that from what we've gleaned, from the biblical doctrine, the biblical truth, that we are spiritual sojourners in this land, that these things, O oh God, that they would be beneath us. Oh, that they would, Lord, not conquer us. That we would, Lord, rise above them. We would look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one has, who has secured us and given us great promises. That, oh God, we would continue to steadfastly, with all hope and endurance, look unto Him and press forward in our calling and in our election. Help us, we praise your pilgrims here on this earth, Lord, to be faithful ambassadors Help us to be faithful witnesses of the good things that you have entrusted to us as your sons and your daughters. And O God, until you come again, we trust that as our bodies are laid in this earthly ground upon our death, that you will raise up by the power of your gospel, you will raise up people to take our place. That too will be sojourners on this earth until the great consummation occurs. Give us, we pray, O God, preserving eyes, sojourning hearts, that we may live for your glory in the evil day and age in which we exist. We bless you, we thank you, and we know you will do great and mighty things through your church. According to the name and the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.